Hello, and today I'm in Reading at the Museum of English Rural Life to meet the artist Amanda Couch. Hello, Amanda. Hello, Robert. And welcome to my podcast. <laughs> thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to this chat. It's fantastic to catch up with you and to find out all about you and your work and what you've been up to. So we are sitting outside in the garden, this fantastic rural museum. I can see a trough. Or a raised bed. A raised bed, thank you. Planted out with corn, which is growing profusely. And that's all your work. Well, it's mine plus the sun, plus the soil, plus the all the genetic material in the genes. I have been making a lot of work around food and around the guts. Yeah, and more recently, growing wheat. So you used the term corn, which obviously can mean wheat, but we also might think of that as being maize corn. So it is wheat that I'm growing. Okay, right. Well, I've learned something already then. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to say a little bit about your work? And If I go back to thinking about my training, which I studied sculpture, um, a degree in sculpture and then in printmaking and during like a master's in printmaking I got into thinking about performance so that's when I got into making performance for camera but I realized that even when I was making the sculpture it wasn't so much the objects that I was necessarily interested in that I made it was always the process so this idea of processing and that and thinking about the gut as a processing tool I suppose and then more recently I've started to think about the other entities that are maybe involved in that process so when you said oh that's your work the wheat growing there I immediately was like well I just put the seeds in you know like I've just left it because actually it's the wheat that's just doing its own thing the carbon dioxide and the oxygen in the atmosphere the sunlight all of that is part of how that piece of work if you might want to say a collaboration or a co-authoring maybe um, has, a, has occurred and I'm a small part in that May, I, maybe I kicked it off let's say yeah oh well that, no that makes sense well so I, I was really intrigued by the title of your blog which was adventures in guts <laughs> so because I wanted to try and paint a little picture for my for my listeners as to the magnificence of your work around guts and food and the intestines and the way in which you use those as starting points maybe for pieces of work or for explorations and can you say a little bit about that and, and the guts and the yeah I'd been working with dust and thinking about like well a whole load of other things and then I did this course a PG cert in creative education and to do my teaching job and to do my art practice and to do the course I found it quite difficult to do all of that and do everything well so in the second part of the course when we were doing research projects I stopped doing my art practice and to try to create a creative way of thinking about the research that I was doing so my research project was thinking about my guts as a or how they impacted on my teaching process and how if I think or reflect on my own body and its slight failings I, I, I hate to say failings because that does suggest a good and bad and I've started to think about how that's problematic but okay so like maybe how things weren't quite functioning as well as I might have liked them to be so reflecting on my own 
issues with my body because I'd have all these all this like tracked wind and if I was doing tutorials it would be like I'd have to hold in my farts basically sorry <laughs> to hold in my farts whilst I was sitting next to a student I mean god the idea that you can sit next to a student at the moment is like we're not going to mention the COVID. So I felt this idea that I was holding in something of myself by trying to make sure I didn't fart when I was in these really intimate situations of one-to-one tutorials. So I was kind of comparing that, do you hold back something of yourself when you're trying to hold back this or trying to create that barrier between you and the external world. So then when I finished that course, I couldn't really go back to the work I was making before because all of these new, all this new learning, all this new theory about embodiment and thinking about the guts. And so I ended up making this book that was a translation or a transcription rather of my final portfolio of evidence. And I wrote it in this continual text. So I did a performance where I wrote on this nine meter scroll and I copied that text with all this new learning. And then at the end of that one nine meters, I turned around and turned the paper around and wrote it again. So it was this continual thing that I did over a number. I didn't obviously sit there for 20, more than 24 hours doing it. So then, then it evolved into something that was more visceral and I started making these dinners where I was feeding people the digestive system. Should I pause there? <laughs> well, no, this is fantastic. I mean, I've got so many questions that, that arise from it. But first of all, I'm, I'm intrigued that you used what was a very personal and potentially very embarrassing situation, <laughs> but you turned that into this creative starting point that you continued to then investigate and explore and and, and externalize. Embarrassment is a, a thing that's it's a very interesting thing, isn't it? Like, I was going to say, well, I, I, I use that word, but I'm, I don't want to project that onto no, you no, if that's I mean, not it's, how it, it was. Well, it definitely, I mean, that's why I was trying to hold, I wouldn't have, I would be too, absolutely embarrassed to fart and make the most disgusting, smelly, um, I can't even think of another word about farts. I would, that, I couldn't, that would be, yeah, gut-wrenchingly awful, especially because mine did at that time smell very, very bad. And I did think about not so much the embarrassment, although I can see that that might be, but we all digest things. We're always, we're all eating. We're all going through those processes and we do all pass wind. There isn't any getting away. Some of it just less potent than others and less frequent. So it seemed like it was a universal thing and these things would have crossed people's minds. But I think one of the things that I felt, and it's funny because my partner was a, at the time, he was a like an assistant head in a school. And I remember reading him my sort of confessions that I was going to be speaking at this teaching conference about basically I was questioning whether I could do my job properly I didn't see anything wrong with that because I thought well I can't be the only one who's in my position and and loads of people in so many positions might have chronic illnesses where they can't really speak about them but it's really important because people are, are going through various things and if they're not now they might later on and we're all wanting to be in the workforce we're all wanting to have and challenge ourselves and do jobs and try new things so why can't I speak about this thing that is potentially gets in the way of the things that I might want to do and how I've got to work with that and um I remember reading my paper out to him because he was like, oh, no, you can't say that. And I was like, immediately, no, I absolutely have to say this. You know, he worked in a school where I think the culture there was that you've got to show this completely 
perfect image like you can't show that you're drowning you can't say that you're having difficulties and so it wasn't maybe about embarrassment but it was more about exposing vulnerability that I felt was actually really important to expose. That's fascinating to hear and then the way in which that starting point then you used it to create and make and, and the manifestations of some of those explorations and uh, on the front page of your website there's this fantastic image of you pointing at this great big pie with sausages that were curling around like the innards of some sort of great gut and the word that immediately came to mind was squelch you know, <laughs> if, if that finger had got into that pie well that piece was called our palace of intestines and i think the image you're talking about was a performance piece where the final part of it is that divination it was a, a still of a divination kind of i guess maybe just going back a little bit i kind of mentioned that i'd evolved into thinking about the more visceral aspect of the of the guts and i'd made these dinners that were called Reflection on Digestion, which was the same title as the book that I was working on, but it was more, we were reflecting metaphorically on digestive processes, but we were, at the same time we were eating like beautifully prepared dishes, you know, like tripe, which is stomach or liver or tongue, you know, really, a, really important dishes. And they've got lots of, there's loads of kind of recipes from various cultures and cuisines that I was drawing on. And whilst we ate a tongue and the, the liver and then the tripe and then we had intestines as well in the form of andouillette. I, I kind of collaged a whole load of texts that I'd found about these particular organs, their historical, their philosophical connections. So for example, the liver, uh, because it was red or really it looked like it was full of blood and so that was deemed to be the place of the soul in ancient cultures, the kind of site of the soul. So yeah, I kind of drew on a huge body of subjects and kind of drew all these things and quoted them and made this text, which I read out, which was on a, a kind of another accordion type book that unraveled as I was reading it. So these dinners would be about an hour and a half, two hours where we would eat and think about those particular organs and how they existed historically or what they meant historically or what the problems were historically and how they're perceived today. So through that research I, I, under, or I started to learn about ancient divination practices and particularly Mesopotamian practices and later on I learned about liver divination so this form of divination is called extispacy which means divination using the guts and it was like in order to decide on where to live, where to, to site a city, to go into battle. I think in Julius Caesar, there's mentioned that the liver had a, a really bad omen for Caesar, you know, and that was just before he was murdered. We tend to parcel things up and hide things from view. And in many areas of our lives now, it's sterilized in a way that we've kind of lost touch with many of the animal sides of ourselves. And it seems as though part of what you're interested in is making those connections again or, or reconnecting us to some of those mm, things. Definitely, yeah. And I think certainly thinking about the digestive tract as, a, as an entity, the reading I was doing around that reminded me that the inside of your digestive system is actually the outside environment. 
I'm going to do a horrible crude, but if you, you know, folded yourself from your anus <laughs> back on yourself, you could turn yourself inside out. So if you swallowed something that, that wasn't able to be broken down, it would just go all the way through you. So it shows you you are basically a donut, you know, just a human shaped donut. So the relatively new research that's thinking about the gut having more knowledge of our bodies or more connectivity or more almost as many nerve cells as say the brain that has its own sort of its own brain so there was a, um, a physician who called it the second brain well i like also how in language that sometimes kind of gives the game away in terms of some of, of, of what we actually think or how we're behaving so the phrase for example like your gut feel is trying to tell us that we have our logical brains or our you know the brains that we've so thinking of as the center of everything but actually there's this another space which is also telling us something yeah, yeah. and sometimes that can be telling us something very different definitely yeah so that idea that it has this connection to the external environment through the sort of nerve cells and the and the microbiome that we've got kind of living in there um, and your work also has this great visceral quality to me I, I confess I'm quite squeamish so <laughs> but there's this fantastic picture of you licking a tongue an ox tongue I think and that is just so what's the word I don't know. In, um, so maybe I should describe it, or maybe you should describe it. I don't know, but but there you are, and the the size of this ox tongue is really it's the size of kind of like a, a fist or. A well, you forearm. look at your forearm, and actually, it was bigger than your forearm. Wow. Yeah. And there you are. So then there's your head, and your effectively in in comparison, this tiny tongue kind of licking this kind of great big slab of of muscle and it's very kind of highly charged in a way or else it feels that way to me so yeah no i i, I was i was really struck by that and, and it reminded me also I can't, i'm try, trying to dredge up my my art theory i think it's baudrillard someone who's talk, talking about some of these disconnects and and i think he used an example of you know you ask somebody well where does food come from and they say the supermarket we don't even think anymore in terms of the food chain all the way going back to the land and, and animals and so on we, we've had this disconnect and so things don't seem to well we, we just package things they've become sterilized certainly in this country i think that is an issue i go to france well you know pre-covid i'd go to france camping every summer and my favorite thing was going to the supermarket for example and just seeing how much offal was on the shelves there i think that's a really important point because yeah it's very easy for for me to get wrapped up in my own little environment and forget that for a lot of other cultures and a lot of other parts of the world they are presumably a lot more connected than we, yeah. we've become probably because of the enclosure of the commons there was mass migration that's some of the things that uh, the project that i'm doing at the mall at the moment is talking about so when you've got that huge migration of people then how to feed them is a major issue and so the way that the abattoir system kind of evolved or the butchering system evolved created a separation you know, I think in the north, there's still, until very recently, loads of tripe dressers. I love the idea that they're called tripe dressers. You know, someone who knows how to, to prepare tripe is called a tripe dresser. And so, you know, those cuisines are still in our 
culture and if you are going to eat meat you've got to think about eating all of it and tripe is so good for you it's like virtually fat free i think probably totally fat free tripe is one of the most beautiful things that you so in cow tripe particularly you have four different types because um, you've got four different stomachs and they all have very different textures you've got book tripe you've got hun honeycomb tripe is one of the most beautiful things you will ever see i love the idea of being different types of tripe or rather different flavors or textures or experiences of tripe from the different cows stomachs that's just so mind-boggling why do you think it is then that a lot of these guts and intestines based offal based foodstuffs have gone out of fashion I think during the war it wasn't rationed, tripe wasn't rationed and so when we finally came out of rationing, because that was quite a long time after the war wasn't it, I think there people wanted to go for those more expensive cuts of meat as a way to push away the feeling of the war rationing or whatever, which is a shame really because in lots of other countries you know they're celebratory meals so tripe and intestines take quite a long time to process if you're or not getting them from the butcher if, if you're you know killing an animal yourself or you're getting them quite you know with very little processing before you get them and that whole sort of process of processing them often women would be doing it but they were doing it in a community in a, the family group and that process of making of cleaning of, of cooking it over time was part of the experience of a particular celebratory experience you know might, might have been for weddings or for a religious festival or whatever and you know I think those things about how long it takes to cook certain foods you know we've gone for a, a very different kind of outlook haven't we now there's a rumor that you might have brought some food oh along. is there a rumor <laughs> Yes. For me to try. Um, is yeah. that rumour by any chance correct? It is. I, I did do some... So this project that I'm working on at the moment with the wheat is called Becoming with Wheat and more Other More Than Human Others. So Josephine Vargo, she's a Swedish artist and she's been collecting all of these sourdough starters and this is one um, made with the sourdough starter from the Levand Arkevit. Right. And it looks very earthy. It could almost be like a slab of earth in the soil. It does know. look a bit parched, it doesn't does, it? It does, doesn't it? With kind of rivulets or kind of cracked earth. I was slightly worried field. by that because, oh um, well, only because I, when I was did the test one, I made a sort of lots of diagonals and I placed the the wheat germ in the holes. But this one, I pushed my hands in like you would with a focaccia, obviously clean hands. Um, I've done a food health and safety certificate. 100%. Don't worry, I trust you. <laughs> um, My life in your hands. Exactly. <laughs> so to pair with this, we've got um, we've got some local cheeses. Um, this is Dirty Vicar, which is horrible. I was going to hash. I was going to hashtag Dirty Vicar, and I thought I'm not going to do that. That's really like God knows what would happen there. And then this is Bark and Blue, which is from Wokingham, which I actually passed through on the way coming here. And then this is some of the Sussex Charmer, which is like a kind of cheddar. So that's a blue, and this is a little bit like a camembert. So then we've also got some rocket from the garden a vinaigrette dressing made from dandelion flower vinegar wow. what else oh and 
some uh, black currant um, black currant jam pastry. So this is black currant jam foraged by my sister-in-law in the New Forest last year. She made the jam, and um, and I've made the. <laughs> so this is an absolutely fantastic spread of food, and it's just about to tip down with rain. We are. Under, under a under an umbrella. We could so, probably move in a little bit, couldn't we? We might be all right. Yeah, we just. It kind of somehow feels appropriate that the the heavens are opening, a reminder of our connection to uh, the natural world. Do you, Although yes. it's a connection that maybe we could do without just at the moment. Here's a napkin for you. Wow, picnicking in the rain. <laughs> so it's per. I mean it's sort of normal isn't it for England? Well it is and thank you so much I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to try some of this sadly my listeners won't be able to try it as well so maybe this is a good point at which to pause and then um, we'll be back after the after the meal. Very nice. Fantastic bon thank appetit. you. Right, so we are back after the most fantastic lunchtime meal, picnic. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Um, are you going to talk about the horrific storm that we were sitting in? <laughs> well, we did have a little bit of a downpour halfway through, <laughs> which just kind of added to the whole sense of being connected in with the elements, didn't it, in Definitely. a way? And kind of folded into the conversations that we've been having, because then also... You've just been showing me around the work that you've been doing here at the museum and your yeah. project to grow wheat. And then the ritual or the mask that you created as part of the project. Do you want to say a little bit about that? So, yeah, I was, I've been making these, well, masks to wear while sewing and whilst harvesting that are based on straw craft and they've taken corn dolly motifs, I suppose, um, because part of what we were doing here at the Museum of English Rural Life was to kind of respond a bit to the collections as well, which is partly where my work evolved from thinking about the guts and because I'd been making pies, I was obviously using a lot of wheat and so the, the work is shown in the galleries that are around, it's called Forces for Change and it's the sort of galleries that are focusing on the mechanisation of agriculture. So they've got seed drills and threshing machines and things like that. And so I was making work, I suppose, that was responding to that kind of time slightly before mechanisation when people would have been still harvesting by hand and those kind of rituals. They're called last sheaf customs because it, there, it, there's kind of quite a lot of myth around it and anthropologists kind of still argue how you know what corn dollies were for and why they're made um, and now they're decorative craft items so there's not a real agreement as to what their history is but I was possibly drawing on these last sheaf customs and so there's some people believe that there may have been belief in a grain spirit which is not far off of our thinking about fertility rituals and goddesses you know yeah, so these last sheaf customs where 
maybe the grain spirits were living in the field and as you were cutting and harvesting and reaping they had less and less places to live so they'd all find themselves in these last sheaves and then in order to keep them happy and to house them over the period when there wouldn't have been anything in the growing these sheaves would have been made into some kind of vessel that then they would live in safely so that you keep them keep them kind of alive and cared for so that when you then you could put that back in the soil or take it back into the ground and re-embed those grain spirits back into the, the earth and there's such a sense of connectivity a sense of, in which the whole process from end to end from the flow of the seasons and the, the life cycle of the wheat the re-engagement as it were and being grounded again in, in the natural world it comes across very strongly and well it's it's so important isn't it and um, well you said you suggested maybe I could bring something along for our lunch sadly I didn't I realized that I didn't actually have a lot growing in our garden that well I wasn't sure whether it was edible or not <laughs> but I, I have brought a few things can I share yeah, what no, I brought totally. just just trying to think about things in the garden and natural things that are growing and whether they have any potentials. Let's let's see what, what I've got. You look like uh, you've got a bit of elder there. So, yeah, so elderflower uh, and elderberry later on. So yeah. that's, I mean, and that's such a lovely plant, isn't it? And, and uh, of course, it's so delicious as well. So, I mean, that's just an absolute slam dunk, isn't it, when it comes you, to... I, if you hadn't have been driving, I'd have brought an example of some of my elderflower champagne that I've made for the first year this year. But also, I can't drink at the moment. Oh, no. So. Oh, right. Oh, well, probably best guess, to, Digestive to problems, yeah. Yeah, exactly. What else have you got there? Okay, so in no particular order, this, well, it's it's already <laughs> it's already shriveled overnight, but this, I think, is a leaf from a wild carrot. Mm. And this may or may not be a tuber of wild carrot. I'm always nervous of the wild carrot family because of there's so many... Um, plants in that <laughs> well you read my mind because one of the things I was going to say was that what I what this made me realize was that would I trust myself again this this severance of the connectivity between myself and and the source of our food you know I no longer know or can be sure what's safe and what's not yeah, yeah. You know, that's a hazard and it, and it made me suddenly realize well would I take a bite of this or wouldn't I you know and I think probably absolutely not, not. Well, no, only because but somebody at some point in history must have had to do that it's sure and I think yeah I, I think that's quite a nice moment isn't it to think about how indebted we are to all of those people that died trying to process food or learn about the food for us and getting it yes. slightly wrong so one of the things that I have like I decided that I wasn't gonna forage any wild carrot but like over the years I have foraged for wild garlic like a lot have you got wild garlic I, I have garlic mustard oh nice okay but wild, well wild garlic's quite different but uh, yes um, no it, no it's yes it's, it's quite got... early it's gone now but um i this year i had a panic and thought i'd poisoned myself because i actually worked out i i can't eat wild garlic oh <laughs> um i might be able to have a few leaves in a, a dish but wild garlic pesto like is made me not very well and but then i started doing some more research about it and realized i'd maybe been a bit gung-ho with 
kind of picking the with picking the uh, leaves and that perhaps I may have accidentally picked I ha I didn't but accidentally picked like um, autumn crocus leaves and which are not very good for you at all um, and it you know just I and I thought yeah what a good lesson it told me that you've got to be way more careful with this have you come across the angel of death mushroom? I haven't. Um, I, again, I don't forage mushrooms either. I must just quickly tell you about it because it is, because it is so horrible. Because it it's just a, looks like an ordinary white mushroom oh. and you fry it up and it tastes fine. And then about half an hour later, you, you know, you have feel horrible and vomiting and everything. And, and you just feel as though you're absolutely going to die. And are you going to die? And then you start to feel better and you think, oh, phew, great, I've survived. Oh, And then God. you die. Oh, my God. Yeah, so that's the angel of death mushroom. But on a... That cheer makes me feel very, very anxious. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. fine. Oh, lovely. On a, on a more cheery note. Garlic mustard. So this garlic mustard, yes, it. it's... The flowers on that is such a beautiful plant, isn't it? And this is the food plant for the orange tip butterfly. Is it? Yes. Oh. So in springtime, on the underside of the leaves, you see these little tiny orange eggs that they plant underneath the leaf. And then when the flowers turn to seed heads, they munch their way through all the seed pods and before turning into, into, into their into, butterflies. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, it is. I love garlic mustard. Garlic You've mustard. got some yarrow in there too. Well, now this was, so yarrow, I brought, yes, I brought some yarrow because I had a hunch that you might be able to do something with it just because of the name and, well, because it looks as though you ought to be able to, but I had no idea what. So I was going to get you to put me right on this I, one. Um, I haven't, I know you can and I don't know, but I will send you I'll do some research because I've got a very variety of foraging oh, okay. books and recipes and I haven't picked wild yarrow myself because I live near this lovely bit of nature land or wild bit but anything that's kind of low down I, I don't generally pick out there because of the dog walkers um, ah. and we don't have it growing in our garden so I will start to grow some I think in the garden um, oh well this is all from have my garden have you got garden. some beech nuts as well yeah oh wow are they beech they... nuts or cob nuts yes <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure of the difference either I've seen so them a lot a this year, crop. yeah, everywhere in and yeah. the, at the um, station where I change at Virginia Water, there's a massive tree and I've been watching them for the yeah. last few weeks. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. Nice. Oh, what have you got there? Oh, I don't know what that is. Oh, it's water mint. Is it? So it's, I think, I think it is. Oh, yes. That's... Oh, yeah. But that's oh, yeah. from my pond, so that's oh, a, so that's a water mint. That's great. So I don't know if you know that's okay or whether it has to be land mint. But... I don't know, but um, I think quite a lot of things in the mint family are, are edible, like nettles in the mint family and self-heal. You've been peeking in my bag. Oh, um, okay. Well, maybe I won't get my nettle out because uh, I'll. Uh, and so finally, a poppy, a poppy yeah, pod. Yeah, a couple of different. Poppies. Oh yeah, they're fantastic, aren't they? So, I'm not yeah. sure we could have a whole meal out of that lot. Well, um, I probably wouldn't touch anything that was in the bag with the wild carrot just until I've gotten more confident. 
with the you, wild, wild, wild carrot. Yes, I'm, I'm saying it's wild carrot, but who knows? Well, exactly. <laughs> my, my identification skills may be a little, not, not all they might be. But this was a really a nice little exercise for me just to think about that, that sense of connection and, and the, the, the food that's all around us, really. You know, I think that the, that's something that I've definitely interested in, that ab abundance of food in nature, like... Um, I've, be, I've always been... I've, I've never been a great one for growing food or having a veg patch, but I've always been interested in gardening for wildlife. Mm. So I have a wildlife-friendly garden, mm. and some of the stuff that grows also has uh, nutritional benefits and... Uh, and I, and I enjoy seeing the cycle of the seasons and, and the way in which, you know, just observing the, the, the life process that goes around each, each, each year. But I think that's lovely because even though if you say you're not growing, you're having a vegetable patch for yourself, but growing for nature, we need the pollinators to be pollinating for the things for them to keep on growing and eat and living. But also, you know, you might be helping your neighbour who is growing, um, if you're growing your um, food to enable the pollinators to and the, and the um, predators for things that you want to keep down, like that's true. aphids. That's true, actually. <laughs> yeah, so there are no boundaries. We've just created those, haven't we? And we're idiots for doing so, aren't we? <laughs> we're total idiots for thinking that we can create boundaries to keep this thing out or that thing out. I mean... Well, maybe that is a good point at which to say thank you so much for this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear all about your projects. And the thing that I'm taking away is that sense of connectivity, the way everything leads into everything else, everything is connected to everything else, and we ignore that at our peril. So thank you so much. Thank and you. particular thanks for a fantastic, <laughs> if rainy, picnic <laughs> yeah it's now the sun is absolutely like i feel like my back is burning how did that happen it's I suddenly know. really really sunny no it's been my pleasure as well and i've so enjoyed i mean it's such a yeah it feels a bit of a treat to talk about my work in this way um yeah thank you for giving me the opportunity to do so it's a pleasure thank you so much <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media. And check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.